0: This is guys.
1: Here on ESPN 8, The Ocho, Show, bringing you the finest and <laughs> seldom seen sports from around the globe since 1999. If it's almost a sport, we've got it here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Remember That Guy, the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players, past and present. And this week, playing the role of James, it's me, Cotton McKnight. Here, as always, with my partners in crime, Pepper Brooks,
0: aka Diaz, back with you once again. And uh, we have a very special guest joining us this week, the captain of that team that has captured the hearts of America, Mr. Average Joe himself, Peter LaFleur, here with us. How are we doing, Peter?
2: You know, I bet it all on us winning, and then I bought out White Goodman's entire business, so I feel pretty good.
0: I feel really good because, James, I didn't know that you were going there with that intro. And as you said it out, when you
2: said Kyle McKnight, I was like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Who's the other guy?
1: You know, I don't want to give you... It's Jason
2: Bateman who, play, who plays Pepper Brooks. It right? is
1: Jason Bateman, yes. And you all are listening to another phenomenal episode of Remember That Guy. We are happy to have you back with us. And let's not worry about dodging anything else. Let's go ahead and head right into it. Xavier, who's making memories for you? Sorry, Peter LaFleur. Who's making memories for you right now?
2: You know what? Only two words, Aaron Judge. Watching Aaron Judge is is special, despite the fact that I had to watch him get walked about approximately 30 times in the space of a week. They actually did show a stat that his walk rate after he hit 60 in the next seven games was 40%. His regular walk rate for the season, which was already leading the majors, was 15%. So he was being walked more than twice as much. But it happened. He hit sixty-one. He's got seven games to hit sixty-two. It's gonna happen. It's just fun watching him. And we've been going way too long recently, so that's all I'm gonna say is my memories. Related to the Aaron Judge thing, so I thought it was really cool how
0: Roger Maris Jr. was there to speak after Judge hit the home run and he said, you know, Aaron's gonna become the true home run king, which we can we can get into that. I think there's things that you could say on either side, but There's one thing that to me should be indisputable, and to me it's infuriating when I realize this. Roger Maris is not in the Hall of Fame. This is absolutely absurd. It's the dumbest fucking thing that I've heard of in the history of a Hall of Fame that has done a lot of stupid things. And before either of you offer a counterpoint, this is my point. In the most basic terms, in the simplest way that we can look at it, the Hall of Fame... for baseball players who have achieved fame. Roger Maris had the most famous pursuit of the home run record that we've ever seen. It was so controversial that they fucking put an asterisk next to it because it pissed so many people off. And we're going to say that, oh, well, I'm sorry, he wasn't famous enough for long enough. And he doesn't belong in because reasons. It's fucking stupid. Roger Maris should be in the Hall of Fame. They need to fix it right now. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of that he's not in.
2: Yeah, I agree. I agree, too. The only reason he's not in is because the shit with the home run chase really took its toll, and he kind of fell off hard and also never had the full support of the New York media to get in when, you know, he was on the ballot. He's a North Dakota guy who wasn't really loved by the team that he was best at, so he didn't really have anyone know banging the table for him despite the fact that again you know home run record and back-to-back mvp i think the back-to-back mvp is the reason why he didn't get it because everyone was so mad that mantle didn't get it those two years he was too busy getting
1: butt injections and getting infections from said butt injections
2: how many points separated maris and mantle in total for those two mvp votes
1: 61
2: seven damn in 1960, it was 225 to 222, Mantle actually having more first-place votes, and in 1961, it was 202 to 198, with mayors getting seven and Mantle getting six first-place votes.
1: Well, look, Roger Maris Jr. is going to need a new crusade soon because he's got about a week left of relevance, and I wish him the best for that. I learned recently that he has a, a clothing line that literally just has the number 61 all over it. Man, talk about coasting on your dad's coattails. But you No, know,
2: it's lasted him 61 years. So, you know, good on him. I
1: do like the numerology of 61 was the record for 61 years in the American League. And now another guy's hit 60. I feel like the one guy from that episode of the rehearsal who's all into finding numbers and places. But it means nothing, except for happiness for you, Xavier, which does in turn make me happy as well. Well, which is how I will console myself when we give up a dozen home runs to Aaron Judge this week. It's all right.
2: It's all right. Those could be possibly bad memories for you, James. But what about good memories for you?
1: You know, there was a lot of like cool stuff that I wanted to talk about with the end of the minor league season. Unfortunately, I am obligated to bring you more butt buzzing news. When our last episode came out that Monday, Magnus Carlson officially released a letter calling Hans Neiman a cheater. He does not specify what method of cheating he doesn't seem to know still no one knows the anal bead thing is like a funny joke and actually it's a joke that is so funny that one danish podcast they brought on a chess grandmaster jonas bier i believe i'm pronouncing that correctly and one of the members of their podcasting group wore a cock ring and basically tried to do the kind of cheating that they've described it with the anal beads i am sorry listeners that we do not have the commitment that these people from denmark do I'm just not going to do that frankly But beyond that, Magnus Carlsen is officially called Hans Niemann a cheater. Hans Niemann has admitted, like, look, I cheated on chess.com a little bit back in the day, but like, I'm done with that now. Magnus Carlsen says, bullshit. Here's the thing. On chess.com, the number of like support tickets going in regarding cheating has exploded in something they're referring to as the Hans effect. They believe that cheating is actually happening way more now since this news broke, which is clearly based on the fact that after this is our third week talking about, like everyone's talking about this now in in the world this is just a story that has fascinated even lay people i'm glad that we got a little bit ahead of the curve there only a tiny bit but because of this a lot of people on chess.com are getting called out for just cheating now and part of it might just be oh it's a new account we've heard about this story of people cheating in chess we want to see whether or not we can do it so it's not necessarily like that many people are trying to really pull one over and build a career off cheating or anything but if you're a highly ranked person going up against someone that is cheating, particularly if they are a new account that has a low ranking because they just came in, that's going to really severely impact your rating. If you prove that they're cheating or if you put in the support ticket and they think that they were cheating later on when they check the match, they'll give you your points back. But man, chess is blowing up. And that's, that's the butt buzzing update over here, folks. I hope this always
2: continues. I hope there's never an end to this. I I hope that it just gets more and more wild.
1: There was this one player, the minor leagues that played every position in a game this week, including pitcher. I had this whole thing like written out about it. And then I read this story today, one about the Danish guys. I was like, all right, yeah, I have to fucking talk about that. And then two, just about the fact that everyone's cheating on chess.com now. I feel trapped by this story now. I will be okay when it ends, but it is exciting in the meantime. Next
2: we'll have nipple clamps and, you know, we'll just get everything covered. It'll be great. You know, I think what
0: it really comes down to is a lot of people, and I'll put myself in this camp, say, you're sitting at a fucking board and you're moving little plastic things around and this isn't really a sport. There needs to be a physical component for this to be considered a sport. And I think a lot of these chess players really took that to heart and said, you want to see how bad I want to win?
1: Oh, you want to see physical?
0: And that's how we get butt buzzers and penis rings and all all sorts of just bodily mutilation in the pursuit of victory, which I fully support.
1: I do apologize for not going to the efforts to listen to that Danish podcast to find out whether or not they were successful in beating Master Jonas Bier with their cock aided schemes. But well, that's a whole load of cockamamie that I am just uh, I, I'm ready to move past Diaz why don't you go ahead and are you going to tell us about the Sixers perhaps?
0: No big Sixers things going on right now it was there was a nice clip and it was the first thing that I've ever seen from Doc Rivers that I actually enjoyed and I was like wow this is a nice thing to see but uh, the Sixers yesterday as we record this they were live on NBA TV just a live practice session they had Doc Rivers mic'd up and Doc was standing with James Harden off to the side and basically in his I've just chain-smoked five packs of Marlboro in the past 30 minutes voice. James, we need you to be aggressive, James. When you're aggressive, James, there's nobody out there that can stop it. And you know what, Doc? Maybe put the cigarettes away, but you're right.
1: He and Calais Campbell, formerly of the Cardinals and Jaguars, now Ravens legend Calais Campbell. It's not even that you're yelling anymore. It just sounds like You've only been yelling up until the very moment that you just now started trying to speak in a normal voice.
0: Right. Now it's, it's the, the, the vocal control isn't necessarily there, but I was really happy to see some good vibes coming out of first media day. But now um, they're having their training camp down in Charleston, South Carolina. I like the idea of getting outside the city for a bit uh, and building some camaraderie down there, but who, who I wanted to speak about making memories for me today. And we don't, talk about fantasy football on this podcast a lot. We had our dedicated episode, I was about eight, nine months ago at this point,
1: 10.3
0: episode, 10.3. So close to the Genesis. But for me, the big reason why we all love fantasy football is we, we get these attachments to these random players that we wouldn't have really cared about otherwise. Right. And James Robinson For the third year in a row, people are saying there's nothing that he's got. He blew out his Achilles at the end of last year. That Travis Etienne guy, wow, what a prospect. J-Rob can't compare to him physically at all. And as we sit here after three weeks of NFL football, James Robinson is the number three running back in fantasy football. He was getting drafted about 40th off the board. And I just want to say, I was right again. I've always been right about James Robinson. James Robinson is a stud of a running back. People can continue to underrate him. And James and I, we don't care about that. We don't care about what outsiders are saying about our team. We're focused about our locker room, and we're focused about putting up points, and we're focused on putting up wins. And that's all that we've done ever since we started our beautiful relationship together. So, James, keep it up. James Fultwiler, you're also doing a great job on the podcast. But James Robinson, I Love you. You are the number two James in my life. You're the number one running back in my heart.
1: Hey, I have no shame coming in second to James Robinson because you won't come in second with James Robinson. Right. The problem is Diaz didn't get assigned James Robinson jersey when he
2: should have. Well, the the possibility was there. I misunderstood
0: the the promotion, I guess, that they were giving. I thought that I would also get a new 25 sent back with it, but here's if I'm gonna get it signed by James Robinson. I'm going to find a way to meet James Robinson, and I'm going to get him to sign it in person. I'm not going to send this so that some fucking intern can hand it to him like, hey, James, we got another jersey today. No, I want to look him in the eyes. I want to shake his hand, and I want to say, thank you for changing my life, James Robinson.
1: (laughs) You can buy something that's already been autographed. That's fine. Obviously, you can go out and get something you owned autographed. I completely agree with you. Sending something you own to the facility, to like get signed and come back, absolute bullshit. That does not count. You did not get that sign. Either you purchase something that's already autographed or you get the signature yourself.
0: Right. That's really where it came down for me. So I, I just need that. This weekend could be the opportunity. I'm I I don't have tickets to the Eagles game, but I feel like if I get down there early enough, I can catch the team bus. And they're going to be like, hey, who's that guy in the Jalen Hurts jersey? But he's weirdly obsessed with the Jaguars running back for some reason. (laughs) It'll be a story at the very
1: least. Can you bring something to like have the flag on a stick as you wait for their bus to show up?
0: I'll have to see what I can jerry-rig. I have that baseball bat that I got from the, um, from the, what is that called?
1: Oh, the vintage store. Vintage yes, store. The, the bizarre antique farm.
0: Yes, yeah, antique farm, vintage store. So I have the baseball bat from there. Maybe I can affix the jersey to it that way and uh, get some attention. But James Robinson, you're a must-start every week. And uh, you're not only a must-start, you're, you're a must in my heart, and uh, you're going to stay there forever. I love you, James Robinson. Let's keep it going, baby. <sighs>
1: I love seeing how strongly, again, that you attach yourself to this player that otherwise you have no reason to have any attachment to whatsoever. I have dipped my toes back in this year. I got to say, your boy Jalen Hurts is very nice. As is your boy Moore Xavier. I'm, I'm digging him as my flex wide out.
2: You know what? Diaz is just going to think about trading Jalen Hurts to Bobby again. Listen, we don't need to dwell
0: down that path. For the people listening at home, I had Jalen Hurts and Joe Burrow, and I hated having to pick one each week. Just I got a better trade for Hurts than I was going to get for Burrow. So I made the trade. I regret it already. Nobody's perfect.
1: Nobody's perfect. Thank you. And besides, hey, you know what? These sports football, we might not talk about fantasy football all the time, but we have talked about it before. And as I understand it, Savior, after your successful litigation last week, that would preclude us from being able to talk about them this week. Is that correct? That is correct, James, because
2: I thought – wouldn't it be fun if we talked about sports that we had never talked about before? You know, we might have briefly touched upon them during making memories, but stuff that we never actually brought up a guy from for consideration. I'd had someone in mind. I also thought this would be a great way to get something really, really fun and stupid from you James knowing what you do.
1: It's the stupidest thing I've ever fucking brought here.
2: Yeah, that that was my hope and I'm very excited to hear what you have to say, but first I want to talk about beach volleyball. If I say beach volleyball, who do you think of first?
1: Missy May Trainer and Carrie Walsh.
2: That is correct. They are the greatest beach volleyball team ever, winning three straight Olympic golds. But there is a third woman who has partnered oh. with both of them during the years and also has had more than her fair share of success. Today, I want to talk. About Holly
1: McPeak. Holly McPeak, I do, I do feel like in watching the what, several Olympic broadcasts of of Trainer Walsh that I've heard that name mentioned, but I, I'm not coming in here with a whole lot of info.
2: She may have been mentioned. She might have been on them at some point as uh, commentators. But Holly McPeak, born May fifteenth, nineteen sixty nine, in Manhattan Beach, California, massive, massive volleyball crazed area. She grew up on the beach playing with all the guys in her area, and it's all she wanted to do. She attended MiraCosta High School, which is famous for being the place where Snoop Dogg and Wiz Khalifa filmed the iconic Mac and Devin go to high school and the Young and Wild and Free music video. I remember watching that movie with Diaz and Mahan for no apparent reason, and it was terrible, but also hilarious. And apparently they got kicked out of there because... People were stealing shit and also smoking a lot of marijuana. And I don't yeah. know what the school administration expected when they let Snoop Dogg and Wiz Khalifa film a movie there.
1: That's neglect if that was something you were going to have a problem with.
2: So- Remember when we had Wiz for Welcome
0: Week? And yeah. they thought people weren't just going to smoke absurd amounts of weed in Lea Kora Center? It was comical when he took the stage it was like the entire crowd in unison decided, yes, this is the moment that we are going to spark our devices. And by the time his first song ended, like I couldn't see five
2: feet in front of me. It was absurd. <laughs> but I brought this up for you both. I thought you we, would enjoy it.
1: We clearly enjoyed it. But let's go back to this high school where this, this scene was filmed and switch back to the real world with this high school.
2: Yes. So during her junior year with the Miracosta Mustangs in the fall of 1985, Miracosta goes undefeated going 29-0 and winning the state championship. They then win every single regular season game again in her senior season before falling to Wainimi in the state championship. So at one point, they win over 50 games in a row, including one state title. During her high school career, she's a three-time All-Ocean League and three-time All-Southern Section setter. Despite her relatively short height, she's only 5'7", and for context, Misty May was also considered short at 5'9", Meanwhile, Carrie Walsh was 6'3", and most top-level competitors are around six foot, if not more. She's still named uh, the most coveted setter in the country by Volleyball Monthly and has her pick of schools of where she wants to go. Eventually, she chooses to attend UC Berkeley because of their really strong academic profile. She cared a lot about school. So she goes to Cal. Freshman season, quickly wins the starting job as setter. It's named Pac-10 Freshman of the Year. Cal makes the NCAA tourney. But they lose the UCLA in the first round.
1: Now, my my gym class knowledge of volleyball involved like shifting positions after play, so I understand the setter is probably like one of the people right by the net who's getting it ready for the spiking. But yes. if we're doing this, is just like still the two person volleyball, so it's not as much rotation, right? So this
2: is indoor volleyball for NCA's. Her love is beach volleyball, and that's what she'll do later on in life as a professional. But for high school and NCA's, it's the indoor multi-person teams. Okay, the big team. Cool. After her freshman season, her coach Marlene Piper leaves to go to UC Davis and gets replaced by a man named Dave Degroot. Degroot and McPeak did not see eye to eye. They still do well for a couple seasons, leads Cal to the tourney during her sophomore junior seasons. But then things come to a head and Degroot bans her from the team. She said he wanted me to do one thing and I thought I was doing it. His anger built up and I didn't know I wasn't doing the right thing because he never told me. It was just a build up and he didn't deal with it correctly and it just blew up. And there are other people who have this same issue with the DeGroote. Family, very, very difficult person to work with. So he just bans her from the team, says that she can't practice or do anything else. At this point, she's like, all right, I'll just finish out my degree and then I'll pick up volleyball again as a pro. But... A friend tells her, you know, you should try transferring. Maybe you can see if you could play at a different school. And this is the 80s, so transferring, not a very common occurrence. But if you did have to transfer and you transferred intra-conference, you had to sit out two years before you could compete again. So it wasn't really an option. But she talked to the coach at UCLA and explained her situation. And they appealed to the pac 10 Mm-hmm. They got support from one representative from every single Pac-10 school saying, hey, she's in a situation where they won't let her out of her scholarship, but they won't let her play or practice. This is a unique circumstance. And so the Pac-10 waives the transfer rule just for
1: her. And she transfers home to UCLA. also get any bonus by the fact that it's still in the University of California system? No. Okay. Uh, still
2: had to get all 10 Pac-10 schools to agree to waive it.
1: Well, but either way, glad that that works out and that this shitty coach doesn't wield unchecked power against a still ostensible child.
2: Yeah, so this season, Cal falls off a cliff, finishes bottom of the Pac-10, and UCLA has a season for the ages. McPeak sets a single-season assist record with 2,192, with a record 97 assists in a single match. UCLA goes 36-1 and wins the 1990 NCAA tournament. They didn't even drop a set in four of their five tourney matches. Pete gets named both first team all Pac-10 and first team all tournament. Coach uh, Andy Banikowski says, I only wish I had
1: her for three years instead of the one. That's just an absurd indictment of the decision to ban her. I hope no one at Berkeley had their job after that year.
2: Imagine that. We're like, we're going to go with the coach. And then the coach finishes in last place in our best player, She does eventually get inducted into both the Berkeley and UCLA Hall of Fames, but they always have to live with the fact that they let her go by choosing the coach over, and then she wins the NCAA tournament immediately. Anikowski does actually get McPeak one more year, this time as an assistant coach, as she pulls double duty. She's an assistant coach for the Bruins team that wins a second championship in a row, while also winning Rookie of the Year for the Women's Professional Volleyball Association as a beach volleyball pro. So she is both a full-time assistant, wins the national championship, again, and wins Rookie of the Year as a professional. Just a note, there were rival volleyball associations that players switch between, so you're going to hear a bunch of different acronyms. The one I just talked about is the WPVA. There's also the AVP, the Association of Volleyball for Professionals, and there's a bunch of smaller tours and international tours that we'll get to later Although McPeak wins Rookie of the Year in 91, she technically had her first professional match right after high school in 1987, but she only played a couple matches during the offseason each year, so she still was considered a rookie when she turned professional. In 1993, she wins the AVP Tour Championship. She wins 11 titles in 16 tournaments. 94, with partner Cammie Ciarelli, makes it to nine finals, wins five of them. '95. She wins 8 of 14 tournaments in the WPVA and wins MVP and Defensive Player of the Year. Absolutely crushing it. 96, she again dominates going to 9 finals with 2 different partners and wins 8 of them. Now, she gets her first taste at the Olympics. 92, beach volleyball was a demonstration sport. So this is the first actual beach volleyball Olympics for women in 96 in Atlanta. She's teamed up with uh, Nancy Reno at this point, and they win their first two matches, but they eventually come just short, finishing fifth out of 18. Brazilians tend to dominate the Olympics early, and overall have, apart from the Misty May and Carrie Walsh timeline, Brazil is really good at beach volleyball, but McPeak is not deterred. 97, she teams up with her old Cal teammate, Lisa Arce. They dominate... The WPVA they win seven titles. They also get to comp- compete at the 97 Beach Volleyball World Championships. This is the first official edition uh, sanctioned by the FIVB, which is the International Volleyball Federation. There had been 10 unofficial tournaments beforehand. Out of 45 teams, McPeak and Ars make it all the way to the final, uh, falling just short against Sandra Pires and Jackie Silva of Brazil, and they end up with the silver.
1: So is is there at no point with beach volleyball uh, an amateur requirement? Because she's clearly been professional for like quite some time before she gets the Olympics and is now continuing to be.
2: It's kind of like with Nikos Gallus, where a professional league isn't considered professional based on, you know, the money being earned and like they're not really being a full amateur status type thing. It's a, It's a different beast compared to... NBA players, and like that, they don't want that type of professional in, in the league. There's not that much of a distinction because there's, there's not that much money. It. They're, they're competing in tournaments all over because otherwise you're not going to be able to really make ends meet. Now, coming off this silver medal, McPeak and Ars, uh they struggle. So McPeak decides it's time to look for a new teammate. So in 99, she plays tour events with Nancy Reno, Gabrielle Reese, and Carolyn Kirby. We're teaming up with a young rookie, and Misty May. McPeak is Misty May's first professional teammate. In 2000, they win titles in three separate tours, USA Volleyball, the FIVB, and the Beach Volleyball America Tour. They qualify for the Sydney Olympics. So Misty May's first Olympic is with Han McPeak. They win their first two matches, where they fall to Sandra Perez and her new partner, Adriana Samuel, in the quarterfinals. After this, the two go their separate ways. McPeak starts the season with May, then plays with Ars, and then ends the season playing with Carrie Walsh. But that doesn't last, and Walsh and May team up, and we know what happens after that.
1: Romantic comedy. No, it's
2: the it's the odd couple. It's really interesting if you see like the list of her different partners. If you look at some a lot of the beach volleyball professionals, especially the top level ones. You'll see their partners, and it's like one for 10 to 15 years, and then maybe a couple others. And you look at the Hollywood Peak, and it's like 20 different partners. She switches them up pretty much every year, which is wild because you usually get really good by becoming really close with one person and being able to work really well with them. But the fact that she kept switching up partners and was really successful with new ones
1: is pretty rare. If it would be either, though, I feel like it makes more sense that it would be the setter. Like if one person from a team is going to be cycling in and out, I feel like it's more reasonable for us just to be so good at setting the ball perfectly every time that a spiker can adapt.
2: Yeah, and the thing is, between 2001-2002, FIVB and the various tours shortened the court dimensions. They used to be 30 feet by 60 feet. And they were they were changed to 8 meters by 16 meters, which was about 26 feet by 52 feet, which makes the court significantly smaller. And this change makes it a lot easier for taller players who didn't have to cover as much ground and can just focus on power, and a lot harder for the shorter players who relied on defense, like McPeak. You know, she said, I like the big courts better. With ball control, we could make the big girls run. And that was how that she had had so much success. She covers a lot of ground. She tries to tire out the stronger, more powerful spikers, and things get a little difficult for her. But she adapts, and now with her new partner, Elaine Youngs, finds great success once again. In 2002, she becomes the first woman worldwide to surpass $1 million in career earnings playing beach volleyball. The pair win numerous events between 2002 and 2004 and qualified for the 2004 Olympics. They topped their group with wins over teams from Canada, Norway, and Switzerland then beat a Czech team in the round of 16 and a German team in the quarterfinals, setting up a grandstand semifinal against world number ones, Misty May and Kerry Walsh.
1: I wish they didn't have to meet in the semis. Like, I wish it could at least be, you're all getting at least silver.
2: I do too. It would have been great. But, you know, this was a big chance to go up against previous partners in the best in the world. McPeak and Young's give them a match. They Score 33 points, which is the second most anyone scores against Maine Walsh, who don't lose a single set the entire tournament. They do fall short. But they do win the third place match, getting bronze. And because the bronze match happened prior to the gold, they become the first Americans to medal in women's beach volleyball.
1: Love a technicality.
2: Afterwards, in the medal zone, McPeak said, You know, I'm thrilled and almost speechless. Obviously, my feeling is different this time Is we accomplished almost everything we wanted. Our goal was the gold, but we'll take the bronze since we lost to the best team in the world. You know, she's 35 at this point, so everyone else is in their mid-20s. So this is like a fantastic accomplishment for Holly McPeak. Terezian, uh, some may say. You know what? Uh, you would say that. She kept coming back because she kept having shit
1: to prove. We're going to make Terezian happen, Diaz, yes, I promise. We'll get there.
2: <laughs> in my vocabulary already. So after this, she plays a couple more seasons with a couple different teammates, Jennifer Kessie, Nicole Brana, Logan Tom, and Angie Akers, ends up retiring in 2008, but decides to come out of retirement because Carrie Walsh asked her to team up after Misty May suffers a tendon injury. So McPeak plays her final match with Carrie Walsh on May 6, 2009, retiring one week shy of her 40th birthday. Her career in beach volleyball spans over 20 years. She was ranked in the top 10 six times on the AVP Tour and seven times in the FIVB Tour. She was the MVP of three different USA beach tour leagues uh, the WPVA in 95, 96, and 97, the BVA in 2000, and the AVP in 1993. Yes, there are too many acronyms, I understand, but this is what happens.
1: I would love to have to decide which which of these MVP trophies design do I enjoy the most that I've won? Let me let me consider the three different approaches here to these MVP awards that I have won. You
2: no, know, there's so many tournaments. She was also named Queen of the Beach at one point, which I think is fantastic.
1: Who, who decides who the Queen of the Beach is? I need to know more about this title. I
2: think it's um Manhattan Beach, uh, the Manhattan Beach tournament. There's a queen of the beach and a king of the beach. Everyone who's good has been this at one point, but it started in, like, 91. A big invitational tournament that happens in California, I believe. Yeah, you get to be Queen of the Beach, which is a really cool title to have. MVP three different leagues, 7 times best defensive player in a bunch of different leagues, and she won titles with seven different partners. Her 72 career beach volleyball titles is third all-time after Misty May and Carrie Walsh, obviously. And she's just one of five women worldwide to have competed in three Olympics in beach volleyball, the first three. Less than a month after retiring, she gets inducted into the Volleyball Hall of Fame. And she finds this funny because someone tells her, like, hey, congrats for getting into the Women's Volleyball Hall of Fame before she actually got the official letter. So she gets it a week later. It was like, I just retired a month ago. How quick were you guys on this? And When she was asked about this, she said that, you know, I just hope I inspire people to go after what they love. Nobody thought I could do anything in beach volleyball, but I did. I worked hard, became one of the best players in the world. I'm undersized, but I have a big heart and a good work ethic.
1: One, to what you've now made me aware, this rarity of her being someone that cycles through so many different partners rather than having that single person they're associated with. I mean, you asked me about the sport and I named a pair immediately. I would never have thought to like talk about one person. That is so cool that she was this sort of Swiss army knife piece that could just shuttle along until trying to find the, the feels almost like she never found that one right spike partner. And maybe if she had, she could have ascended to even greater heights.
2: Yeah. I listened to an interview with her from a couple of years ago. Uh, She was asked about, you know, her favorite partner and, you know, she took the nice route of saying, everyone, but she did say that Cami Ciarelli, she felt like she had the best connection with. And, you know, Ciarelli, she only was partnered with in 94. Maybe if they had been like similar age, you know, Ciarelli was seven years older. Maybe if they were born both in the mid 70s and could have partnered with each other for a long time, they could have done even more. But, you know, it showed remarkable adaptability to keep winning, even with all these different partners and all these different strategies and with a different court size that was specifically made to benefit players that are not her. So it's
1: cool that, that there was that sort of boxing strategy almost to, to volleyball when it was a bigger one If the little guys just trying to like tire them out and outlast them. And then you get the knockout punch. Yeah. But you know, just like many
2: sports, they want to prioritize the cool flashy stuff, which is spike. So you want to do stuff to make the, Powerful players have a better shot. Chicks dig spikes.
1: Chicks dig the long spikes.
2: Everybody digs spikes.
1: Well, uh, I mean, very literally, you try to <laughs> dig a spike.
2: Okay. There. Ha, ha, ha,
1: ha. <laughs> Look who's making puns now, Xavier.
2: <laughs> it was <laughs> unintentional. Inbracing. It doesn't count. But um, at, since since she retired, she's been a volleyball color commentator for Fox Sports, ESPN pac-12 network she's all over the volleyball scene you know she talks about she lives breathes volleyball and so she just has a great time talking about it with everybody but yeah holly mcpeak the third best beach women's volleyball player and possibly could have been the best if born any other time other than perry walsh misty may dynasty but set the table for those two and help the young Misty May on her way. So maybe we don't even get Misty may carry Walsh without Holly McPeak.
1: I'm glad that it's clearly a cordial relationship between the three. There doesn't seem to be any bitterness. There's, there's recognition that th- those are definitely the three best American beach volleyball players of all time. Yes. So Holly McPeak, something I'm very glad you mentioned, Xavier, was a note in there about her earnings. That's how I learned about the person I'm going to tell you guys today. I have a question for the two of you. Who do you think, and we'll say this is adjusted for inflation, who do you think is the highest-earning athlete in like their career winnings of all time?
0: Career winnings, I'm going to probably, I'm going to say either a soccer player or I'm going to say Floyd Mayweather. For
1: inflation,
2: I'd say something, someone like the early 1900s.
1: Those are reasonable guesses. Floyd Mayweather's high up there. And it's also reasonable, Xavier, for you to go back. But we actually, we need to go a little bit further back because you're both pretty wrong. We need to go, in fact, very far back. We're going to go a couple thousand years back. <laughs> We're going to go back about two millennia to a time where the biggest sport in the world is chariot racing. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lord. I'm going, this going is to tell exactly you. what I wanted. I'm going to tell you about the charioteer known as Diocles. <laughs> Did either of you see this coming?
2: No, but I love
0: it. So I was actually, I was discussing this uh with my girlfriend Jocelyn and the tease that you gave us. I was thinking like, okay, we're probably going like greyhound racing. It's going to be like some play on like he got that dog in him because he's an actual dog. I did not see this coming.
1: chariot racing. Here's another question for you guys. How old do you think chariot racing is? Like when do you think chariot racing started? Best guess.
2: Oh, how, the Romans have been around for a while, so 4,000 years. Y'all give me, give me a, uh,
0: give me a 3000 BCE.
1: So it's about in the 1200s BCE. It's the 13th century of before common era. Uh, It's in a time period called Mycenaean Greece, which is sort of the Venn diagram between the bronze age. And then what we all think of as like classical ancient Greece, which we'll refer to for reference here as Hellenic Greece. Hellenic Greece is where that sort of really takes off and becomes a big organized thing with chariot racing It continues through the Etruscan Society, which is a predecessor on the Italian peninsula, to then the Roman Empire, which, as they do with many Greek cultural artifacts, are more than happy to just totally take it and make it their own. See their entire religion. But in (laughs) 753 BCE, when Rome was founded, they might have actually had the first chariot race that very first year. Apocryphally, Romulus, one of the two founders, looked around Rome and saw that it was a giant Italian sausage party. There were not enough women. And so they hold this big tournament. And this is called the plight of the Sabine women. They invite the Sabines over. This was a neighboring, like, tribe of people. But by that, they means they invite the Sabine men. They invite them to this giant race. And then they go steal all of their women while they're busy with the race and bring them back. And this is how Rome becomes populated. And so chariot racing right there at the beginning of Rome stays very much at the core of it particularly becoming important as we turn into the common era when the emperors return to the empire. When we have emperors again, they start taking political power away from the people. And they realize if they're going to do this, they still need to keep the people engaged in society. Have you guys heard the phrase bread and circuses before? Yes. You want to keep people fed. You want to keep people entertained. Some of the things that they would entertain with are gladiator battles. Plays were really big. Plays were basically blockbuster movies. Uh, they liked to make artificial lakes and flood those and then stage naval battles. This was something that the Romans did a lot. But That's a badass. <laughs> <laughs> they would sometimes flood cities and do it too. And wild. But the biggest thing was at these circuses, which do not have any clowns or anything like that. The circuses are the stadiums where racing happens. And the best one, the most well-known one, the biggest one, is the Circus Maximus. Started in Rome in 329 BCE, but really when Caesar gets to it, it's just like, Flat land and a bunch of kind of temporary stands builds it up into this big thing that can hold 200,000 people. The biggest stadium in the world today is in India, it's Narendra Modri Stadium, 135,000. This is larger than any stadium that exists in the modern world. It is about 1200 meters long, so laps like three quarters of a mile, and it's absolutely enormous. All the poor people get in for free. Uh, Again, because they need to keep them entertained. And we're going to spend a lot of time in the Circus Maximus. But let's go ahead and meet Diocles. Diocles is born in 104 CE. And he's born in the Roman Empire. So he is Roman. But something important to know is that this is the peak of the Roman Empire. 117 technically is the year where it will be at its largest landmass. 5 million kilometers squared. A little bit bigger than the EU is today. So it's massive. Because of that, he's not born very near like Rome. He's actually born all the way in a region called Lusitania, which is in modern day Portugal and like southwestern Spain. And this is a very significant area at the time. He's in a larger sort of super region making up that whole peninsula called Hispania. Hispania is actually where the emperor that is in charge when he's born, Trajan, and then the very next emperor following him, Hadrian, they're both from Hispania. So this is a guy who's representing Rome, he's representing another country too, or another region, and he is from Hispania. This is, this is the horse source for the Romans, for lack of a better word. Like North Africa and the Iberian Peninsula, it is the horse source. And as such, it's where there's a lot of very good horse racers. He does come up in this local scene. We think that he may have been born in a town called Lamego in the Lusitania region because there's some minor like instance of him potentially being referred to as the Lamego, essentially as his name. We don't know a lot about his early life. What we mostly know about comes from two inscriptions, one where he'll later retire and die and one at the Circus Maximus. So it largely concerns his career. Because of that, for a long time, everyone kind of assumed that Diocles was 100% a slave. Most people that are participating in gladiator sports and in chariot racing are slaves. And that is because there's a very stratified class society in Rome. And if you're doing something like gladiator or chariot work, you are what is called infame. Which, even with like our basic knowledge of a Roman-derived language, English, we can guess that infame, probably not very good. This is literally a lower legal class. It includes pimps, prostitutes, executioners, undertakers, heralds, butchers... And then also all entertainers, including the
2: Wait, I, I love this group. This is such a fun group. This is that's It's really an cool. awesome group. It's the that's best the, people to hang out yeah, with. That's the best cast. That would be the funnest pe- That's so good. Wouldn't well, want to again, this is star why stars. they have
1: to burden them with literally lower legal standing than like an average Roman citizen. Otherwise,
2: everyone would just do that. Everyone would be that. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Who doesn't want to hang out with pimps and butchers? And also <laughs> entertainers. So... That was like the assumed status. you like, yeah, of course he was a slave. Almost everybody in it was a slave. There is some whispers now that it's possible based on a couple sources that you can kind of draw Venn diagrams between that he was born into more of a middle-class family, one that had like some mercantile shipping interests by cart and stuff in the area. And I'm going to go ahead and sound the speculation alarm here. Speculation. 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 This is 100% my opinion. I'm editorializing here. I really like the idea of him coming from this middle-class mercantile family. I like the picture of him working for his dad one of those summers. He's just on the back of a cart. Like maybe a horse just gets out of control once and he has to calm it down. And that, that just, he feels so alive and he catches the bug. And so he pursues this chariot racing. And as I mentioned, he comes up in the local scene. And then at the age of 18, he is ready to go to where any chariot racer who wants to earn their stripes goes, the city of Rome and the Circus Maximus. Makes his debut in 122 CE. At this time, there are four teams, or factionists, basically four, like, organized stables. Again, this is like a lower class thing, so the patrons couldn't even really use their real names. They're just, like, paying these stables the money on the side to get the best racers and keep all of their horses in shape. And there's four of them. As I mentioned, the Reds and the Whites were the earliest. Those are like your old school teams, but they'd kind of faded a little bit and been overtaken by the Blues and Greens at this time. So those four colors, Red, White, Blue, Green, those are the only four teams in chariot racing. He is going to sign with the Whites, who at this point were considered to pretty much be bringing people up from the lower caste of society. The Whites are your entry-level team. And one thing that we know for certain, I say we don't know a lot about his early life, We know he didn't win a race for his first two years in the circuit. And this, this I think is a corroborating piece of evidence for the theory that he is a middle class dilettante. Because chariot racing is fucking dangerous, uh, as you might imagine. The Greeks were like, kind of reasonable. They had the reins to the horses attached to the chariot itself. The reins to the horses in Roman chariot racing are attached to the chariot rider. They are tied around their waist to their horses.
2: Ooh.
1: Yeah. Now, don't worry. They've considered what will happen if they have a crash. You have a dagger on the side of your belt, <laughs> and you can cut the rope if you have time to do that during a horse crash. Otherwise, you are cut in half. And like also sometimes do other daggery things, you know, things happen in the scrum.
0: That's two James. <laughs>
1: So, he's, this, this is a very dangerous sport, even for the very good people. He's not taking off immediately. There was actually someone who, a few decades before, there's records of this one slave, Fuscus, who he is the only chariot rider that we have record of that won his first race. Wins 53 races in his rookie season. He also dies in that rookie season at the age of 24. Everything he accomplishes is in one year because even if you're good, this is a dangerous thing to do. That's why, I again, I do not think Diocles is a slave because I don't believe that there's a guy who's hanging around for two years that they're letting still race for two years if he's not giving it his all to win at some point. Like, he's, he's got some kind of cushy fallback option. He's not putting his all in at this time. He hasn't made the commitment that he needs to make to get over the <laughs> But that is going to change. So it's 124. He's been doing it for two years. Some switch flips. And he immediately in this year starts getting recorded as basically the best person on the white team. We know that at this time he is riding what is called the quadrigang, that is the four horse chariot. You could race anywhere from two all the way up to seven. It was typically, though, two or four. The four one is like the standard kind of centerpiece one of all of the performances. Daniel,
2: quick question for you. Sure. If it's two horses, are they brutal best friend horses?
1: It's possible. It's possible. But again, they're not worried about how much they can tug. They're just worried about how fast they can tug. Now, they might be able to tug faster if they are best friends. We'll get to the horses in a little bit. We do have some records of his horses. What we also have a record of is his general strategy, which is incredible. This is like not something that exists in most of the records of chariot riders. There are seven laps in these races. And turns out what he starts doing is intentionally driving behind the pack for about the first six laps and then much like our friend Stephen Bradbury just bursting ahead at the very end becomes well known for this this is becomes like his calling card he will be booked for the biggest races because all of the fans come knowing oh man Diocles is going to pull it out of his ass again he uh, he irritates the hell out of his competitors but he thrills all the fans and the organizers the organizers, this time it's handled by a, again, this is a very stratified society. The bureaucracy is also very stratified. The aediles was a civil servant position that as far as I can tell, basically just existed to plan chariot racing. This was like a job that you had to be good at in order to try and get a promotion to a better civil service job. And so they were incentivized to hold as many races as they possibly could. They would have 66 days in the year Where in those days, they would hold 24 races, each roughly an hour apart. So just a full day, going at it. Because of this, someone like Diocles, who's pretty good, he can race three to four times in a day during one of these tournaments. And he's typically placing in the top three, which is what you need for a payday, about two-thirds of the time, and half of those times that he's placing, he's winning his races. So he's competing in maybe about 180 a year now, and winning 60 outright, Probably about 120 placing in the top three and getting his payday. Be good. He's very good. He's so good that they start putting him in the Pompa Circensis. That is basically the first race at the beginning of everyone immediately following the opening ceremonies. So he's collecting a lot of acclaim too. He's becoming very famous. You know, even though you're part of this lower level of society, the one reason someone might still do it is other than being like a senator or a really successful general that the only way you could become famous was like by being a chariot racer. There was another Latin phrase called the fur circensis. Basically means that uh, chariot racing fans are fucking crazy. We have, <laughs> we have records of at least one fan of the red team throwing himself on the funeral pyre of his favorite racer. We also have records of them. Frequently, there'd be these vendors outside the stadium selling curse tablets you could buy a curse tablet so you can bury it under the starting track somewhere to try and curse your opponents. People loved chariot racing. It
2: sounds like Diaz and everything
1: with the Eagles.
2: I mean, the Sixers, let's be real.
1: Diaz, would you bury a curse tablet at midcourt? In the, if you can get into the mechanics of Wells Fargo Center and I get you a curse tablet, can you put it there?
0: It sounds like my next statement could implicate me in a legal situation, so I have no further comments.
1: That's fair. Fair. Well, let's get back to Diocles then. We won't get in trouble for that. Diocles ends up racing with the white team for a full six years, and then he decides it's time to move on. He's gained his fame, and so he wants to join the premier team of the day, the Greens. His time with the Greens lasts three years, and I will go ahead and spoil it, is not a very glorious time for our friend Diocles. And historian David Matz has concluded two things about this. One, it seems like he was almost certainly injured very early on. And two, It seems like he kind of pissed off team management. And there was just a lot of retribution in terms of his standing for that. The green team was very deep. Green team was a very talented team. And so he came from being the best guy on the white team to now being a good piece on a green team, but they didn't need him necessarily. And so between an injury, between not necessarily getting the glory that he wanted after those three years, it's time for a move again. He's going to make his last move to the team he'll finish his career out with, the Reds. He's on the Reds now, and he's just going to stack up this point,
0: just make a, an analogy at this point? It seems very Kevin Durant-esque. I can't, win with, you can say, I can't win with these horses, not these cats. So let me link up with the super team.
1: But here's what I'll say. He doesn't even necessarily have all that much success with the super team. And he chafes at not being able to be the centerpiece of the super team. There's definitely an analogy here. I'm trying to think of Kevin Durant. It's the, it's
2: the Russian Revolution. He goes from the, from the Whites to the Reds.
1: Well, with the Greens in between, <laughs> yes. But he is with the Reds now. I teased earlier that he is the winningest, in terms of money, athlete of all time. Let's talk about those winnings that he's going to have by the end of this Reds career. We know for a fact that in his entire career, he won 35,863,120 sesterces. Mr. Sturcy was a little Roman coin. It was so valuable that it was not in actual circulation. It was just given to, like, victors of things because it was the (laughs) best way to, like, be a monetary value that they could accept for the amount that they were giving them. Cherry racers were paid handsomely because most assumed they were going to die very, very quickly. Here's Uh, fake
2: money that doesn't have any actual value because it's too valuable.
1: It it had value. It's more like someone gave you a bunch of $75 bills for something. They made this specifically for you. It's a denomination that doesn't exist for normal people. So it's both a status symbol that you have it. And also it's easier for us to give you that versus three times as many $25 bills. Another okay. totally real denomination. <laughs> now it's it's really hard. As we we said, inflation adjusted earlier. Inflation across like centuries is already difficult. Deflation across millennia, even more so. And this is across different societies. So like Forbes has said what they randomly think that number is, but I want to establish their methodology a little bit because what we've done instead is we've taken contemporary descriptions of how much that money would be worth and ported that over to modern day value. For instance, it was said that he could pay for all of Rome's grain supply, the Roman empire's grain supply for an entire year. It has been said that he could pay for all of Rome's army for five months or his own army of about 29,000 soldiers for an entire year. What's more, we also know that he has roughly, according to his just pile of like winnings in terms of mineral value, about 26,000 kilograms of gold. So all of these give you a very wide range of numbers, anywhere between 10 to 50 billion. If we go by the gold, that's $12.7 billion. So let's use that concrete number as of 2021, Michael Jordan is actually inflation-adjusted, the modern-day winningest athlete in terms of career earnings, with $2.62 billion. So minimum, six times that. Now, there is some tax involved, probably. He probably had to pay some team fees. Even if he was only taking away 10%, which is about what the slaves who raced would get put into a trust that eventually they could buy their freedom with. Still bringing home 150,000 sesterces a year. That's still 150 times the average salary of a soldier. He is raking it in. And there's a couple factors to why he has the most earnings. It's not because he's necessarily the best charioteer. He's a very good charioteer. But in the red team, he gets to be a big fish in a small pond again. Now, the green team's very deep. And because of that, they often race in the races where you can have a couple members of your team all there. And you can race together and sort of like strategize the way we were talking with bike racing. He starts racing in the singles races, which do earn you more money, but you don't have any help. Now, with a deep team like the Greens, that's not necessarily a good allocation of resources because you've got all of this depth to draw from. But if you're a star-heavy team like the Reds, and this is your guy, yeah, put him in the singles all day. Let him rake in that cash. Furthermore, later on, he even goes, uh, as University of Chicago historian Peter Strzok says, to start racing the six and seven horse ones, also because they just make you more money. He is specifically following the options that are going to get him more money at this point. Diocles is a very crafty charioteer, and he continues this. It had been about nine years that his career lasted when he got to the Reds. He races for the Reds for 15 more years. That's the other thing. Just an insane longevity.
2: It's insane that he lived
1: that long in that era.
2: let alone How dangerous the thing he wanted
1: to do was. He, he is an ancient age when he retires of 42 years, seven months, and 23 days. That is his age on the day of his retirement. When he retires, what well, we know about his career statistics, 4,257 career four horse races. Of those, he won 1,462 of them, placed in another 1,438. Most of those are listed as being second. That's 2,900 total paydays across his career. And also, according to this inscription, he broke several records.
2: <laughs> Do we know That's... which records?
1: No, but we know that he broke several records. <laughs> so 1,064 of those races were the singles. Again, he's trying to stack that coin. 110 of them, for what it's worth, were those Pompa or Kensis, the very fancy, glorious ones at the beginning. To his reputation, he was a comfort behind guy. His 67 recorded comfort behind wins. He does have 815, where he went from wire to wire. So he was just like a very good charioteer, period. And we do know about a couple of his horses. He had at least one horse that reached the vaunted 200 win mark with him. That was probably Cotinus, who we know appeared in 445 races with him. Cotinus, we know, probably started training about five, the age that most of these horses train much, much older than thoroughbred horses. They're also very often mares, because mares are a little bit calmer and don't lose their shit as much. We know about at least one mare, who also won 100 races, one of nine horses of his that won 100, Abigailus. She was described as treasured. We don't know anything else, but we know that <laughs> Abigailus was treasured by Diocles. As you might have noticed, there are a lot of very specific statistics that I have here, and some very specific descriptions of like his racing methods. The two inscriptions that we have, one of which, again, was at the Circus Maximus, and one of which was, we know, left by a son and daughter, so he also had a family, That was left in the area he retires to after this career, called Prineste in modern-day Italy. He probably dies pretty shortly after he retires because this kind of plaque probably would have been done as a sort of memorial thing. So he lives a short retirement there, passes away with the family. And because of these two inscriptions, I'm saying that that's where we have most of his information from. That's still, to an archaeologist, a vast, vast amount of information he is basically the way that they've been able to reconstruct their understanding of this particular period, this like couple decade run of charioteering. Almost all of that knowledge comes from this information about Diocles. So he's, he's not the greatest charioteer of all time by any means. Only 20 years before him, there'd been a guy named Flavius Scorpus who won over 2000 matches. Outright. Wow. Yeah. So like not the greatest. And I mean, don't even get me started on later Byzantine icon Porphyrius the Charitor, also known as Calliapus. Like, we all know once you get into that, it's, it, he's incomparable. But where Diocles stands out more than just his winnings, which are incredibly impressive, because of that longevity, because of, again, maybe a difference in upbringing versus many of his competitors, and some privilege that we should acknowledge there if that is the case, speculation alarm. Speculation. Because he was able to come from that angle, he gave us such a rich understanding of his time. And one last fact, we don't know what happened to his fortune. The fortune of Diocles is somewhere out there.
2: All right, I'm going to Italy. Italy. I'm going to go. Look,
1: if we induct the ghost of Diocles into the hall, we might get a little bit of a hint of where to start looking. For 26,000 kilograms of gold.
2: I doubt he speaks English, so we'd have to learn. I I took
1: Latin in sixth grade.
2: Okay, I'll leave it I'll up to you. figure it out.
1: One. Yeah. No, that's Diocles. That was very fun to put together. It was, again, probably the dumbest thing I've ever researched.
2: That was fantastic. That was exactly what I was hoping for when I came up with this topic. So thank you, James. You, you have made my knight by bringing chariot racing from the Roman Empire. Thank you.
1: Here's the thing. You got, I've made your knight, and we still have another guy to go, X. Your cup runneth over.
2: Excited to see what one uh, Justin Diaz has for us today. Incredible presentation
0: on Diocles. There's a very important detail that you're holding out because obviously what I do sometimes, you bring up people I've never heard of. I Google them as you present because I want to like, what, 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 what details are being left out?
1: Can you, if I may, I have a, I'll put it this way. I have a final argument for Diocles that I'd like to save until litigation. And it involves the fact that you are currently withholding sure. If I may, hold it until then. I promise I think it'll be – We
0: will let Xavier's eyes and ears remain
2: virgin to the to the pure. I got to stay unspoiled. I don't want to know what I'm going to learn about. I refuse to use Google. We'll we'll hold on to it for now. It's
0: going to be a hell of a final punch from James. He's going to try to really strike his mark. And uh, somebody that I want to talk about is somebody who, who made a living striking his mark. A lot of people think darts is just like this fun little game that you can play in a bar and you know anybody can walk up there and nobody really knows how it's scored but we just know that we like throwing sharp things at a board and seeing where it lands Uh, and for much of his life uh, up until he was about 26 this was exactly the, the same way that Phil Taylor looked at darts but at a certain point Phil Taylor got his professional set of darts, and he ended up turning it from a simple weekend hobby at the local pub into becoming, by almost all accounts, the greatest darts player of all time. So we'll start August 13th, 1960. Uh, Philip Douglas Taylor is born in Stoke-on-Trent, England, in central England. He leaves school at the age of 16. There's no indication that he necessarily graduated from anything. But he needed to make some money. So we held down a few jobs. And the most well-known of these, the final one really before he starts becoming serious, is that he would make 52 pounds a week making ceramic toilet roll handles. Incredible. Very neat.
1: That's a that's pretty good pay rate for that, I feel like.
0: It's solid. And you know what it is? It's, it's repetitive work, right? It's doing the same thing over and over again and eventually honing your craft, I think. His ability to to lock in on that when it comes to making the ceramic toilet roll handles is what helps him to translate it into darts. Because again, as compared to some other sports, in billiards, there's going to be different angles that you're going to have to hit. Basketball, football, different competitive sports, you have to worry about what your opponent's doing uh, as it relates to many other things. Darts, I have this one simple motion, and if I can repeat it the exact same every time, I'm going to be pretty good. Uh, And Phil Taylor turned out to be pretty good. He grew up playing darts and and footy, of course, right? Like, as any any boy in England would do. He doesn't really take it serious until 1986. He's 26 years old at this point when two big things happen. First of all, his wife, Yvonne, bought him his first set of darts. And with this first set of darts, he says, you know what? Uh, That local pub down there, Eric Bristow's pub, They have a darts board there. I think I'm going to go play down there. It's important to step in, though. Eric Bristow is not just some random bartender in England. Eric Bristow is one of the greatest darts players in England. He had been number one in the world at at some time before. And the name of this pub is the Crafty Cockney, which was Eric Bristow's nickname in his competitive days. That's a good nickname. Does
1: does Phil Taylor not know this?
0: I'm sure this is part of the inspiration. This is part of why he ends up there. But it's really just a matter of happenstance. My wife bought me some darts. Former number one in the world has this pub down here where there's darts. Let me go down there. Let me throw some sharp things at the board and let's see what falls. (laughs) Um, He very quickly appears to have some natural talent. By the end of this year, 1986, uh, he's already been named to the county team. And he's playing at the Super League level, which is essentially you can think of this as... This is where the best amateurs compete. They compete at the Super League level. At the end of this year as well, Eric Bristow has taken notice of this random lad that's uh, come in with his darts and he seems to be winning every night. So Eric Bristow said, son, you have too much talent to be wasting away in my pub. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna give you a 10,000 pound loan. I want you to go in full time on darts. I want you to take it really seriously. I have one condition for this. You need to give up your job as a ceramic toilet roll handle maker.
1: (laughs) But I was born to make ceramic toilet handles, coach.
0: And at the age of 26, you know, maybe he's found this craft here, but he decides to take the leap of faith. And with the blessing of Yvonne, he decides to go pro. So he takes the 10,000. A lot of this uh, is to get him over to the States. For his first tournament, a lot of the major tournaments are occurring in the States at the time. So he goes to Las Vegas uh, for his first professional event in 1987. And he loses in the first round. Immediately swept out. And a lot of people could have taken this to wonder, is this for me? He continues to compete in a lot of tournaments throughout 1987. Doesn't win any of them. Not a great start for Phil Taylor. But it's just a small setback for a big comeback. In 1988, he reaches his first final in the Canadian Open. He goes up against Bob Anderson. Bob is also from England, and Bob is the defending world champion. Phil Taylor doesn't care about any of that. He's just here to throw some darts, and he's here to claim his first Open title by defeating Bob Anderson. 88 is a pretty good year for Phil, and he's starting to establish himself on the scene. He's still very much an underdog, still very much... Under the radar, but he's got enough encouragement at least to know there might be something to this professional darts career. In 1989, he reaches the quarterfinal of the British Open before he bows out, goes to the semifinal of the World Masters, which is enough to get him an unranked qualification into the World Championship. So he enters the 1990 World Championship of Darts unseeded and a 125-1 long shot on the books to come home with the title. In the first round, he faces number six seed Russell Stewart. He gets the victory. Second round, he faces Dennis Hickling. He gets the victory. We're now into the quarterfinals where a very good name for a Darts player is Ronnie Sharp, but it wasn't a good enough name for him to get the victory. <laughs> So Ronnie Sharp bows out. Now he has a very tough matchup in the semifinals with Cliff Lazarenko. And he ends up beating Cliff Lazarenko. So he advances to the final. And who is waiting for him? Fresh off of his recovery from a severe case of dartitis, which is a real condition in the sport. Basically just the yips.
1: I thought it was going to be like dart arthritis, like some very specific joint thing from the pinching. No,
0: dartitis is basically just their word for the yips. And who is waiting for him there? Eric
1: Bristow. Oh shit.
0: Same man that gave him his start just 3 years ago at this point. He gives him the 10,000 pound loan. And Eric Bristow is waiting for him in the title. The the dartitis struck Eric Bristow in 1986, so a little before he gave this loan. He probably saw a little bit of himself in Phil Taylor. And uh He was able to recover. He actually reclaims his number one ranking entering that world championship. They split the first two sets. After this, Phil Taylor locks in and he rolls to a 6-1 victory to claim his first world championship as a 125 to 1 long shot, beating his mentor and the man that gave him his financial start in his first world championship victory.
1: Like just the beginning in the first place. Of hey, let me go down to the neighborhood pub with the number one ranked darts player a few years ago. Like that already was. Hey, I'm I'm Emilio Estevez and Mighty Ducks coach Bombay, and I just know this incredibly good like German ice coach that happens to (laughs) own a hockey supply store like two blocks away from me. And now he's facing the mentor in the championships. I would say that this was a bad script if it was a Disney Channel movie. This is incredible. This is
0: what dreams are made of, and this is what Phil Taylor is made of. Phil Taylor takes this victory, and sometimes you just need one. You get one across the board. Now you got all the confidence in the world. You know, we hate Tom Brady, but Tom Brady wins the Super Bowl his first year starting and ends up becoming the greatest quarterback of all time. Very similar thing here. You just got to get one on the board. Now I know I can do it. Now I'm going to do it again and again and again.
1: I see what you did there with one on the board. Don't shh.
0: After this, he goes on a roll, Quite a hoiter run. He wins the title at the Isle of Man. He wins the Finland Open. He wins the North America Open. He wins the Denmark Open. He also wins the British Pentathlon, the British Masters, the Europe Cup Masters, and the Windmouth World Masters. All in the same year, all of those titles coming after he wins his world championship.
1: There's only one I have questions about. Which is that. What's a dart pentathlon?
0: I really wish I had more information for you there. Like, <laughs> I feel like they just called it like a fun thing. Like, what's a fun sports thing? The uh, dec- decathlon, uh, we can't go with that. Uh, the pole vault, that's nah, really not. The pentathlon,
2: sure. Why not? James, what is the name of a cat from the Isle of Man?
1: A mannish cat.
2: <laughs> I don't get that reference. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. Yeah. I don't know. But what I do
0: know is Phil Taylor's now established himself as basically the guy to beat within the darts community. 1991 is another good year. Uh, he bows out at the quarterfinal stage of the world's year. But in 1992, he reclaims his title with a 6-5 victory over Mike Gregory. To this day, he cites it as the most intense match of his career and his greatest triumph, really. Winning that in 1992. Now uh, we enter what we're going to call crossroads in the darts community. A lot of the top pro players have been upset for a while that the game's ruling body, which is the British darts organization at this time, they're losing sponsors left and right. Their TV coverage is very minimal. And they're, they're just, in general, upset with the arrangement. So much like Bender Bending Rodriguez would start his own tournament, They start their own organization, the World Darts Council. But does it have blackjack and hookers? There may be blackjack happening in the crowd. There may be hookers in the crowd. The the infame, so to speak. (laughs) Well, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me to see both of those things going on in the crowd because one of the main things that the World Darts Council, which is now known as the Professional Darts Corporation, one of the things that they really said is, why are we treating this like it's this fucking serious old man's game? We need to get some youth in here. We need to get some excitement in here. So they start with, first of all, everybody's got to have a nickname. Everybody has to have their own nickname. My first Phil Taylor goes by the Crafty Potter, taking his inspiration from his coach, his his mentor, Mr. Bristow. But very quickly, the, the media decides that's not what his nickname is going to be because... Phil Taylor comes
2: out to
0: The Power. Everybody knows the song. Nobody knows who it's by. He comes out to it. And finally, they decide, you know what? Fuck that. Phil Taylor, you're the power. You are the power, so he is now known in all dart circles, has been for the past 30 years as Phil the Power Taylor:
2: That's a good, good nickname,
0: incredibly good nickname.: I mean, it's a great nickname. I love it, and I mean, comparison that just comes up in my mind, obviously is set aside the funding source. This is kind of the PGA Tour versus LIV golf. A similar premise is going on here. The top players are saying. We can get a lot more money over in this league. We can implement our own ideas, so they start their own league.
1: We can have a little more fun. A
0: little more fun, you know. Make make darts a little more sexy. Bill Taylor is <laughs> decidedly not sexy, man. Uh, if you look him up, but we're gonna make the sport sexy. They have the pyrotechnics when people come out now. Really make it an event, and also to the point of the crowds. Right, you, you see modern darts crowds, and they lose their absolute shit at each throw. It used to not be the case. It used to be more of a, um, a tennis or a golf crowd where during the action, no cheering. Once it's been done, we'll give a nice, a nice clap and good for you. Not anymore. The thing is, though, that the BDO continues to exist alongside the uh, Professional Darts Corporation for quite some time. But ultimately, the PDC does win out. As in 2020, the BDO did finally fold. It no longer exists, and the PDC has won out. Suck it. Now, (laughs) I could spend the next half hour going through Phil Taylor's career and just telling you, oh, and this year he had this really tough battle and he did this. Instead, I'm just going to list it off for you. From the start of 1994 in the BDC, this is how he does in world championships. 1994, he's the runner-up. He loses to Dennis Pricely. In 1995, he wins. He wins. Defeats Rod Harrington. In 1996, he wins. He defeats Dennis Presley. In 1997, he wins. He defeats Dennis Presley. In 1998, he wins. He defeats Dennis Presley. Sucks to
1: be Dennis Presley. Jerry West,
0: motherfucker. It's going to get worse. In 1999, he wins again. This time, he beats Peter Manley.
1: Peter Manley is the one who uh, the one time said, who's in charge, the devil or me? I think it's me. That's the fucking line that I have etched in my brain from darts. Peter Manley then also did terrible criminal things later. So, fuck him. So, we're really glad he lost. So, at this point now,
0: we have have the one win over Rod Harrington. We have three straight over Dennis Priestley. And we have one over Peter Manley. So, as a five-time champion, he goes against Dennis Priestley again. Priestley is looking for his revenge. He ain't going to fucking get it. Bill Taylor wins the world championship again in (laughs) 2001. He sweeps John Park to claim his seventh consecutive title. And seven is good, but eight is great. And in 2002, he defeats Peter Manley, seven nothing sweep again. Eight times in a row, the world champion.
1: Man, Preece really is Jerry West to his Bill Russell.
0: (laughs) That's a great comparison. Absolutely astute and accurate comparison. He's very much the Jerry West. 2003, John Part, who was swept in 2001, finally manages to end his impressive streak. And uh, Phil Taylor is no longer champion. But in 2004, Phil Taylor <laughs> beat Kevin Painter 7-6 to six in the World Championship. In 2005, he beats... Mark Dudbridge, 7-4 to in the World Championship. And in 2006, just as one last fuck you to that scumbag Peter Manley, he sweeps him in the World Championship again. From 1995 to 2006, there are 12 World Championships that are contested. He appears in all of them and only loses the one in 2003, 7-6. It almost seems like it wouldn't be fun. That's ridiculous.
1: It's exactly a Bill
0: Russell-ass career. And in that time, he has four sweeps in the championship where he doesn't drop a single
1: set. That is significantly more sweeps than Bill Russell had in his career. How many, how many did Bill have in the finals? Only one in the finals. Only one. Shame on you, Bill Russell. Now we're speaking to all the dead. Listen, Bill Russell, the greatest winner
0: in American sports history, but with all due respect, does not hold a candle to Phil Taylor. After that, so Phil Taylor, 2007-2008, goes on quite the cold streak. He goes two years in a row without winning the world title. And in 2009-2010, he runs back a repeat, beats Raymond von Barneveld in 2009. 2010, he beats Simon Whitlock. Goes two more years without winning the title. And uh, in 2013, he claims his final title, beating Michael Van Gerwen 7-4. He would compete in the following five world titles. He would lose in the second round. He would get a runner-up in 15. Losing the third round in 16. The quarters in 17. Finally made it back to the title in 18 when he lost to Rob Cross 7-2. And basically decided, you know what, that's it. He described that match to... It was the same feeling that he had when he beat Bristow all those years ago. He said... Listen, I'm I'm the wily old veteran, but he's the young kid. He kept putting pressure on me the whole game. His exact quote, it was like an old man against a young man. It was a mismatch. That's it for me because I haven't got the energy or interest to beat Michael Van Gerwen or him, referring to Rock Cross, who got the victory. But good news, friends. In 2022, they had the inaugural World Seniors Darts Championship. (laughs) And Phil Taylor's back. More darts Does lose in the quarterfinals to Kevin Painter, who he had beaten all those years ago in 2004, seven to six in the World Championship. But Kevin Painter knocks him out in 2002 in the quarterfinals of the World Seniors Darts Championship. Not just going through worlds, but let me go through some of his other accomplishments. He has the most televised nine darters, which is basically a perfect score in darts. He has 10 of them. Uh, his most recent coming in 2015 against Peter Wright at the Sydney Darts Masters. Some other accolades that he has accrued. He was the runner-up for the BBC Sports Personality of the Year in 2010. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2011. He won televised Performance of the Year for all British sports in 2016.
1: There was really no... I'm not saying that I haven't... Look, I'm loving Phil Taylor. There wasn't any better sport on television in Britain that whole year?
0: Not a single one because these motherfuckers love Phil Taylor. All right. One other just impressive thing. So Rob Cross, who beat him in the 2018 World Championship, is the only darts player ever to have a winning record against Phil Taylor. It's the only one. He also has a 57% win rate against Michael Van Gerwen, uh, who is basically (laughs) considered the number two in all time. He was the first player to eclipse one million pounds in prize money. And as of today, Phil Taylor rests with seven million six hundred thirty four thousand seven hundred fifty four pounds in career winnings. So just far and away the goat of this sport. Nobody even comes close. Um, He's done all kinds of fun stuff. So in, in British media. He appeared in, uh, in a music video for Justin Hawkins for This Town Ain't Big Enough for the both of us. Made several appearances on the ITV game show Bullseye. He appeared in many different BBC shows over time. In uh, 2012, he actually made his uh, musical debut. <laughs> okay, Phil Taylor. Uh, he, he did a charity single with uh, Chaz Hodges and his band and the song was called Got My Tickets for the Darts. <laughs> In May of 18, 2012, um, the night after the playoffs at the O2 in London, which is where it premiered. And the proceeds from the single were donated to the Haven House Children's Hospice. So, nice thing to do for, for the kids. Just really an incredible career for Phil Taylor. Just starting from uh, quite literally working on toilets to becoming the greatest player in the history. And uh, one thing is certain, Phil Taylor has got the power.
1: <laughs> he doesn't just got it. He embodies it, uh, has clearly imparted some of it to you. He's, that was a powerful, powerful litigation for him. I mean, like the greatest darts player of all time. If I've ever heard a category of guy in my life, it's greatest darts player of all time. That, that's, it's a bullseye right on the money. That was phenomenal. Thank you.
0: Thank you. No, it, um, I, I love those things that it's just like, we like, I feel like we've all played darts at some point. We probably didn't play the right rules we probably just made up our own rules but we've all thrown darts at a dart board and uh to, to know that this guy at the age of 26 started taking it serious and becomes the goat really is what dreams are made of it's what guys are made of dare i say
1: well said but i mean the problem is that the two dreams are going to end here mcpeak the fact that there is another like great American beach volleyball player, I literally couldn't have told you that like there is a third great one, male or female. I, I wouldn't have known. But just a, an incredible story and to know that she got to like touch that is is great. And what more can you say about Phil Taylor other than he's the greatest darts player ever? Which is just it's
0: just And of great. course his name is just Phil Taylor. <laughs>
1: Well, as no, fill the power, yeah.
0: by his full title, you know, we don't want to be derelict in in our duties there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there's Diocles.
1: There is Diocles. Here's here's my last pitch for Diocles, because I'll admit I'm still very firmly in in favor of Diocles. I I've laid some seeds in case you couldn't tell during that. For instance, the fact that uh, Diocles is from Hispania. You know, just a week after we're talking about Hispanic guys. Clearly, Diocles was very comfortable being a big fish in a small pond, very comfortable being a workhorse. We've discussed he's not the greatest charioteer, but he was certainly around for a long time, if not a good time. Certainly from the lesser known pages of history books, uh, a great individual sport guy representing multiple countries. And I mean, the progenitor of Stephen Bradbury. But is he the progenitor of just Stephen Bradbury? Because I might be trying to make it seem like he fits in to all of these archetypes that we've discussed in previous episodes. But he comes thousands of years before any of these people. He doesn't fit into these archetypes, these archegypes, if I may. He creates these archetypes. I posit to you that Diocles is the Ur-Guy. He is the beginning of guydom. He is the font from which all further guys flow, and if you need further proof of that, as I tease, there is one last piece of information that I have withheld, and that is the full name of Gaius Apuleius Diocles. Ah, oh, He
2: is the guy, the one true guy.
1: It's not that we, everyone we've discussed is a guy, but he is he is the common genetic ancestor of all guys.
2: Oh, that's incredible. Got to go with Diocles. It's in the name.
1: Diaz, I, I also want to say, I, I so thoroughly appreciate you showing the restraint and allowing me to, to bring that hammer down here.
0: I needed to, because far be it from me to steal one guy's thunder. I need, I need to leave you with your thunder. I need to let you bring the hammer down. I'm aboard. I, I think aboard? we have a unanimous here.
1: Then uh, I do you, need, you have the name. You don't need me to
0: repeat the full name, I have again, it. do you? I have it. So it is, uh, it is our great honor to welcome in one of the foremost athletes in the history of sport. And certainly a guy that has that guy in him, because it is literally in his name, Mr. Moneybags. And the oldest guy, and dare I say, will be the oldest ever in the history of our Hall of Guy.
1: I'm not gonna make a push to come.: We
0: little go <laughs> further back, but for now we're gonna draw the guy there and we're gonna welcome in Gaius Apulius Diocles into the Hall of Guy.
1: Welcome. Now, now tell us where the twenty-six thousand kilograms of gold is, please.
0: That's all we need. I mean, as as the foremost fans of him in the modern era, I think it's kind of our right.
1: Well, I will say, real quick, speaking of fans of his era. I could not have compiled all of this without the phenomenal work of historians David Matz and Peter Strzok. If there is any way I can get them to hear this acknowledgement, thank you two for helping make that story possible. It's awesome. I love it. Diaz, we getting a, are we getting a TikTok ever? We're going to work on it.
0: Uh, that's a little tease for for you loyal listeners. At some point or another, we are going to launch our TikTok. We'll be going back through... Previous submissions uh, through this podcast, will be, we'll be modding those into short form, probably 60 to 90 second videos to, to, to make it a little more digestible for this ADHD riddled generation. But uh, <laughs> that, that, that will be an effort that will be coming. And uh, the only thing I'll say for now is stay tuned.
1: Because if there's anything that we are known for, it is our brevity. So let us not overextend our time here any longer. Thank you all so much for listening to us again. I've been James. I've been the
2: lover of the big meaty Oz. very special guest Xavier.
0: and I'm Diaz, and actually, I forgot there's one more thing with Phil Taylor. He actually proposed one more big change other than um, changing his league. He wants to change it the red dot in the middle to a bull's guy. <laughs>